Welcome to Valley Baptist University, an online ministry of Valley Baptist Church where we seek to worship God with all our minds. I'm Eric Hahn, Dean of VBU. This segment is part three on the subject Christianity versus the new spirituality, or sometimes called progressive Christianity. Today we explore the question, is all truth relative? Hey everyone. I wonder if you've ever heard it said, well, that might be your truth, but that's not my truth. Or maybe somebody has said to you, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. Now, if what is meant by this is just seeing something from a different angle in a quest to discover what really is the truth, that's one thing. But often what's meant is there is no objective truth, meaning nothing that's true for everyone, no matter what you happen to think or believe or feel about it. Now, some would even put it this way, there is objective truth, but it's impossible to discover. So today is another segment on how we differ as Bible-believing Christians with what can be called the new spirituality or progressive Christianity. When people speak of deconstructing from their traditional Christian faith, often these are the positions that they'll land on, these titles and, and some of these truths that we're looking at and comparing them to the teaching of these other worldviews. Now, we've looked previously in comparison at oneism versus twoism. In other words, the new spirituality will commonly teach that God is one with nature. And then stemming from this oneism view, people are encouraged to seek their divine within or even meaning a Christ consciousness with somebody saying something like, I am my own Christ. You can go even to progressivechristianity.org website and you can find these ideas on there. One of their ideas is that they follow the teachings of Jesus, which leads to an awareness and an experience of the sacred or the oneness and unity of all life. They also say that Jesus simply provides one of many ways to experience the sacredness or the oneness of life. So now we're going to look at not only how this idea that God is one with nature and seeking the divine within can be applied, but now how stemming from that is the idea that I am the definer or the creator of my own truth. Now, I want to give you a warning. With God's help, I really want you to put on your thinking cap for this segment. And in fact, this will likely be longer than the previous segments. You might want to get a cup of coffee. You might want to stand up and stretch. Take a few deep breaths. So remember, in the previous segment, I referenced a book and a movie that was made. It's called Eat, Pray, Love. The movie stars Julia Roberts. It's a true story about a person on a quest for self-discovery. The same person goes through the normal practices of those who claim to discover the divine within. Even one description of the book says that she explores her own divine transcendence. As the story goes along, at the same time, the character changes her lifestyle. She ends up practicing adultery. 
Now, suppose somebody like a Bible-believing Christian lovingly quotes the Bible and says, actually, no, you are distinct from God. You're not your own Christ. But then the character in the story says, well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. That's the idea of truth as relative. In this case, meaning relative to a person's own subjective experience or self-knowledge. Sometimes this is referred to as a postmodern view of truth. And we're not going to explore what postmodernism means in this segment. We'll look at that in the future. But there's a very thoughtful Christian thinker named Paul Copan. He has a book that's entitled, True For You, But Not For Me. Copan uses an illustration of a car accident. So imagine there's a car accident. There's many bystanders who have their version of the truth of what happened. One person might have been in the accident. Another person might have been three cars back waiting for a light to change from the intersection. Another person might have just been living in a corner house and they just heard something. And so all these people get interviewed, say, by a police officer who arrives on the scene. He starts taking notes. This might even end up with lawyers getting involved. Eventually, there's a judge and jury. And as Copan explains, eventually truth or objective truth begins to emerge. See, this very act of investigating assumes there's such a thing as objective truth. Paul Copan concludes, ultimately, a description of the accident will emerge that corresponds to reality. And that's what most of us, when we're in our daily life that's livable, are thinking of as truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. This is the biblical version of truth, contrary to what many people seem to think. Truth is that which bears witness to the way things really are. Now, if you get into a postmodern view of truth or relative view of truth, you have these divergent views. You have the pragmatic view, which is truth is just what works or just what works for me. You have truth is that which coheres or what is internally consistent. You can probably realize if you interview a bunch of witnesses, just because they agree with each other, that doesn't necessarily mean what they're speaking is the truth. They might have colluded in their stories. Or someone would even say that truth is that which is ex existentially relevant, say, to our own existence or our own experience. I've actually read a number of books by some of the leading progressive Christians. And what strikes me about reading them immediately is how poorly researched they are. I actually have one here. It's by an author who was interviewed by Sean McDowell not that long ago. And he seems like a nice guy, and yet when I read his book, I don't see that he is doing enough research to come to a view of reality on these subjects that would correspond to, to objective truth. Once, one little note is if you find a book on some very heavy subjects and you don't find virtually any footnotes, that's probably a good idea that they haven't done their homework. 
And in fact, he goes very specifically into a truth that feels good motif. And that's one of the divergent views. He says in here, imagine based on some very, very sparse biblical support. He says, imagine how you might feel about someone in a certain way. He says, that feels good, doesn't it? He says, go on and keep feeling that way about God. The question is, what is God really like? What's the objective truth of who God is? That's looking at a truthful way that corresponds to reality regarding theology. And what opposes that we would categorize as falsehood, that which doesn't correspond to reality. Now, take a deep breath. Get a cup of coffee. Let's review this. So new spirituality says I'm one with God, therefore I discover the divine within, or I have Christ's consciousness. Being like God, I define or create my own truth. Truth is subjective to an individual's viewer preferences. What's the biblical Christianity view of reality? It is that God is distinct from me. God is omnipresent spatially, but ontologically, in the essence of his being, God is still distinct from his creation. That's called twoism as compared to oneism. Because God is distinct from me, I am not God, I am not Christ. Instead, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's God, there's the world, I'm of the world. And therefore, truth exists distinct from what I believe, think, or feel. I'm not creating or making truth up as I go along because I don't have the authority to do that. Biblical scriptures are immersed in this objective view of truth. Truth that's unique from what people believe, think, or feel. A classic text is Matthew 16, 13 to 17. Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Notice Jesus didn't respond by saying, oh, very good, since that's all true for you. In fact, if it's true for you that I'm John the Baptist, you just hold to that truth. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus instead says, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends his answer. Now, one progressive Christian author actually states that Jesus was commending Peter, not because of the truth that, of Christ that he confessed, but because he came to that conclusion on your own. In other words, Peter, very good. Keep coming to truths on your own. Now, if Colby Martin was correct about this, wouldn't Jesus have commended Peter's position in the following verses? Again, all you have to do is keep researching what the text actually says. In the following verses, in verses 23 and 24, when Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem to die, Peter rebukes Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. 
But it says Jesus turned to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now stop right there and think about this. Jesus did not say, Peter, again, congratulations for coming to your own truth. No, Jesus says, Peter, you're wrong. <laughs> There's such a thing of objective truth and objective falsehood. One has to do with the mind of God, which is truth, and the mind of man, which certainly in this case is false. Think of it this way. Can people really coherently hold and justify holding that there is no objective truth? All you have to do if you're talking to a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a child, a grandchild, is apply what's called a self-refuting test to the statement. This is just called simply an argument that's self-refuting, or some call it a suicide bomb statement or a boomerang statement. And it becomes nonsense sometimes immediately if you're listening very carefully. If I were to say to you today, I can't speak a word of English, you should immediately say that's nonsense. Because up until this time, obviously, you're speaking English. You see, my statement explodes in on itself. The very statement itself refutes itself. So think of it this way. If somebody says, I'm an absolutist, I don't believe there's objective truth. Or if somebody says, I'm not an absolutist, I'm a relativist. The question can be, is your relativism absolutely true? The statement itself is self-refuting. Somebody pushes back, no, no, there are no absolute truths. You can ask, is that absolutely true? If you go back to the progressive website, Progressive Christianity, they say on there, we believe that there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. A simple question is, is your belief about questioning itself absolutely true? Putting it another way, do you absolutely believe there's greater value in questioning than in absolutes? It self-explodes. And you could even test that with the person making the assertion. Would you prove you believe that by allowing us to question that belief itself? But somebody often puts it this way, holding to absolute truth is too dogmatic. Usually what they mean is it feels dogmatic. But you can simply respond, your assertion itself sounds pretty dogmatic. There is a Christian thinker named Norm Geisler. I had a chance to meet him a number of years ago before he died. Geisler puts it this way, if truth is absolute, meaning true for all people, time and places, then everyone who claims anything is true is dogmatic. Even the relativist who claims relativism is true is dogmatic. The person who claims that relativism is absolutely true is particularly dogmatic. Somebody has done research on this. Her name is Ashley Cusick. And Ashley Cusick 
co-authored a book called One Faith No Longer. She co-authored it with Philip Yancey, who's also a very prolific author. She uh, has an earned PhD at the Queen's University, Belfast. She's a very careful thinker and a very careful researcher. After researching numerous Orthodox traditional Christian churches, as well as numerous progressive Christian churches, she writes in this book, documentation that leadership in progressive churches are actually more insular than in traditional Bible-believing churches. In other words, they are actually protecting themselves and they are more objectively dogmatic about the views that they're going to surround themselves with than in churches with conservative biblical beliefs. Now, somebody would challenge her assertion, but in the very least, what we can conclude is that Christians in progressive churches are demonstrably dogmatic about their relativism. Paul Capan's book, In True For Me But Not For You, actually uses an image where he talks about relative absolutism. And he means that as being like an ironic contradiction, relative absolutism. And that's what many progressive Christians hold to. Think of it this way. It's like saying, well, I just believe in square triangles. It's like saying, I want you to meet my friends. They're married bachelors. Now, in fairness, as Christians, as Norm Geisler says, we need to make an important distinction. Truth is absolute, but our grasp of truth is not. Geisler says just because there's an absolute truth, that doesn't mean that our understanding of it is absolute. So this, in fact, he says, should cause the absolutists to temper their convictions. So I want to give you something that tempers our convictions as Bible-believing Christians. Here is a formula that I have found helpful. It's not original to me, but it helps express where we are in the reality of truth as compared to some extremes. Now, I'm going to use the word agnosticism, which doesn't just mean I don't know if there's a God. It means that I don't know something or I don't know about a subject. So pure agnosticism says I can't know anything. Now, pure dogmatism says I can know everything. But realism says, I can know some things. I want you to see that this is the biblical understanding of truth. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts, except that no one can know everything God does from beginning to end. That's realism. That's a realistic view of truth, but still holds truth as objective. Now, take a deep breath. In future sessions, we're going to look at how we can know the Bible teaches not only some things, but even many things. For now, though, consider that when people say we can't really know anything, 
that there are very few people who genuinely think that we can't know anything, especially when it comes to at least knowing enough to live within a perceived knowledge of reality. If someone really held to this epistemology, that's what it's called, a study or an understanding of knowing, if they really held that we can't know anything, we would classify many of these as clinically insane. Even if people who regularly say we can't know anything know that at least they know enough to make the claim itself. Again, the claim itself is self-exploding. It's self-refuting. Commonly, people actually deep down they hold to the correspondence or objective view of truth, but they're not really trying to discover what's objectively true. In other words, like somebody who holds to a postmodernist view of truth, instead of researching what's objectively true, like in this book, they're mostly just telling their story. When they tell their story, they're holding to a subjective view of truth that just says, this is my truth. Again, this often stems from a oneist, self-discovery, divine within worldview. But they presuppose that. Why do they presuppose that? And why are they selective to apply it to this and not other subjects? Well, it really becomes suspect that this is just what people want to believe. One of our pastors, Pastor Roger, commonly preaches that a criminal is very often not looking for a cop. And so if we know that our view of church seems to be a little bit criminal, maybe we just want to have maybe just a confirmation bias that says, well, I'm just going to let this be true for me and don't bother me with the facts. Don't bother me with an actual sample of research investigation. This is just my truth. In other words, someone's actually saying on this subject, this is my truth. This is what I want to be true and therefore this is true for me. Think back in Genesis 3, the serpent in the garden said, did God really say, I mean, if you eat from this tree, you can become like God. In other words, the serpent said, just develop your own truth about what God really said. The serpent tapped in to Adam and Eve's desires. And this is what we see in the scripture in 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4 in New Testament times. Paul says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Notice there our own desires, what I want, what pragmatically works for me, what my feelings dictate. So then we prop up the truth and the teachers and the books to turn our ears away from what is the objective truth that corresponds to reality. And we just call it my truth. They turn away from what's real to what they wanted to be real. There's actually a very famous thinker in history, Aldous Huxley, who when pressed on it, once admitted about belief in God, I just don't think God exists 
because I don't want God to exist. That's a subjective view of truth. He's not applying the objective view of truth by his own admission to the subject. Now think if we did this with other subjects. What if it was a court setting? What if you were the person who was in the accident and you didn't think you were at fault? You'll notice that nobody goes to a witness stand in a court setting and is allowed to say, I swear to tell what's true for me, what's only true for me, and nothing but what's true for me. Virtually nobody would say that's a trustworthy witness. And especially if, if you were the one who had charges against you, you would not want that to be the context of the court or the attitude of the witnesses. I submit to you today that living by this premise that all truth is relative is not trustworthy in any other context either. This is specifically not trustworthy about the subjects of our view of God, sin, Jesus, redemption, or eternity. I ask you to really think about whether these subjects are so much more vital than even the subject of a car accident and who's at fault or much of what takes place in a court setting. This has to do with the greatest questions of life. If you really examine the scriptures, examine it yourself, you will find the New Testament is bathed in this principle of truth as objective and exclusive. Here are just a few examples. John 18, 37, Jesus speaking. He says, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. If truth is relative, why does there need to be an outside witness if the world is one with everything and concocts its own truth? Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. But if they're speaking from their own divine within, aren't they speaking their own truth? 2 Peter 2.1, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. But if all truth is relative, how could someone teach something that's false, especially about spiritual matters? Here are some more verses. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test for what? To test to see if it's objectively true, if it corresponds to the reality of the true God. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, If anyone teaches otherwise and consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, it goes on to warn against that. It doesn't say, then just go and affirm them because everything's one and this is their truth. No, it says to withdraw and certainly withdraw from those teachings. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. The word apostle means messenger, but wait, 
If we all have Christ within, aren't we even more than apostles? Aren't we all Christ's? No, we're not Christ's. And if we don't teach Christ's teachings, we are false teachers or false messengers. Here's a very obvious verse, John 14, 6, that shows both the objectivity as well as the exclusivity of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Notice the definite articles, which are very distinct in the Greek. It's truth that's exclusive. Hey, hadas, the way. Hey, aletheia, the truth. Hey, zoe, the life. In other words, another way is not the way. That's a false way. Another way is not the life. That's a false life. And of course, another truth is not excused or qualified because it's your truth versus my truth. It's simply false. It's certainly not just true for you and therefore qualified. No, there is the truth. And there's the truth about how to come to the Father. And if it's not the truth, it's false. I really pray that today, if you're somebody who's giving in to this idea that I just have my truth and nobody can know any truth, consider very clearly today Jesus' words that he is the truth, the life, and the way. And today, very particularly, very exclusively, in faith, turn to Christ and give your life to him as the way to abundant life and life eternal because he died for you and rose again. Thank you for being with us here at VBU. For further reading on this subject, see the book, The Other Worldview by Dr. Peter Jones. And more specifically for today's topic, the book, True For You, But Not For Me by Paul Copan. We'll see you next time for segment number four of this series as we look at the question, are all religions one in the same?